Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. So our scripture reading today comes from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read verses 41 through 44. As we come to this story, let us first join together in prayer. Gracious God, because You are God, it is Your Word and Your Word alone that is life for us. And because You are gracious, we trust that You will speak to us even now, even here. We are here, O God. We are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's listen for God's Word for us. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor woman came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then Jesus called His disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have created out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Unless you fear I have confused the 4th of July with Stewardship Sunday, hang with me, hang with me here. When this moment happens, it won't be long. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem, and the songs of Hosanna have faded. The Last Supper is being prepared. His crucifixion is just hours away. And he chooses these last moments to teach. And Jesus often chooses to teach based on what he sees right in front of him. And he's in the temple. And so what he sees is the teachers in the temple teaching. And he's unimpressed. He says unkind things about the religious leadership. I chose, if it's okay with you, I chose to skip over those verses for our conversation this morning. After critiquing the religious leaders, he pauses near the treasure and he watches folks make their offerings. And there's some folks who are loaded that come in and they're very generous. But Jesus' attention is not drawn to them. It's drawn to this woman who we are told is a widow She makes a gift to the temple. It wasn't much. It was one of those gifts that has a bigger impact on the giver than the receiver. I guess all gifts work that way. But she gave just two lepta. These are the smallest Greek copper coins. They're of very little value. But Jesus said it was all she had to live on. 
and she put it in the offering plate. And Jesus makes sure that his disciples notice her. Look at that woman, he says. Did you see that? Some modern interpreters of this passage believe that the tone in Jesus' voice is one of lament, maybe even anger, because what is being witnessed in this moment is injustice. One student of the text, a scholar, said, this woman's contribution was totally misguided thanks to the encouragement of the religious leaders. But not only misguided, it was also a waste. Why would her generosity be both misguided and a waste? Well, I guess we're going to have to consider those verses I wanted to skip over. Misguided because in the prior verse, Jesus says, Let me tell you about these religious leaders. They get the best seats in the synagogue. They get the, which in here would be toward the back. They get the best seats in the synagogue. They get the best seats at the festivals. They pray long prayers. And they devour the houses of widows. He condemns the religious leadership because they use their religious power To dehumanize the weaker members of society, it is dishonorable. It's like people today who hear the TV preacher say, send in your Social Security check, and it's going to be a big blessing to you, but it's also going to help me get my private plane and wear my $5,000 suits. It's dishonorable. The temple is corrupt. There's no doubt the temple is corrupt. Jesus says so himself. This is why some scholars say her gift is misguided. There's no honor in contributing to a corrupt institution. Some also say her gift is a waste. Because the next chapter, the very next couple of verses, I didn't read that part either. The very next couple of verses, Jesus says, look at this temple. It's going to be destroyed, not one stone left on another. It's not going to last. Her gift is a waste because she gives it to a temple that has no future. Many readers of the gospel, therefore, are convinced that Jesus looks at this woman and it breaks his heart because of the injustice of it all. And they may be right. But I'm not so sure. If I understand the text, you've heard me say that before. If I understand the text, there may be something else going on here as well. So I'm going to invite you to crawl out on this interpretive limb with me. I'm not arguing that the temple wasn't corrupt. It was. It was an institution. And no institution is pure. Institutions, after all, are just groups of people, and no people are pure. We all have our failings. Perfection in our institutions is not an option. Jesus did not abide in justice. But he also asserted that none of us, none of us are defined by our failings alone. 
A friend of mine, a preacher friend of mine, called my attention to an article that was written by Colston Whitehead, and the article is entitled, The Loser Edit That Awaits Us All. The Loser Edit That Awaits Us All. Uh, Whitehead offers a reflection on those reality TV shows. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those reality TV shows where the whole point is for people to get kicked off the show. You know, you get kicked off the baking show because your muffin's dry, or you get kicked off the island because you can't hold on to the vine all the way across the river. Whitehead says what makes those shows work is that the viewer starts believing we have the capacity to tell who's going to get kicked off the show. And so we, we, we figure that, that who, you know, when, when Samantha gets kicked off, we tell ourselves, well, we knew she was getting the heave-ho. I mean, we saw that coming. I'm pretty good at judging these things, you know. You could tell that Ramon wasn't, was too nervous to make that demi-glaze work. White has said, these shows work because across the hour, they bring into focus what he calls the loser edit. They bring into focus the failings of certain ones, the, the self-centered actions, the picadillos emerge so that we can tell who the losers are. The loser edit brings into focus the weaknesses and failings of a contestant so that when they get shipped off, we say, well, good riddance because they deserved it. You see, he suggests that they get kicked off not because they made a mistake or failed even, but because they're bad. There's a winner edit too. The winner edit focuses on little victories and acts of heroism among those who make it to the end. Look, this is not new in television. Some of you who are older than I have been told about this. Some of you who are older than I will remember that when television first started, the bad guys were clad in black hats and the good guys were clad in white hats. That way you could tell the content of the soul simply by the apparel. Well, the same thing's going on now. The strategy's just a bit more uh, sophisticated. The loser edit through all of the hour shows us who's not worthy to remain and who is. Why am I talking about reality TV shows? Uh, actually, I don't think Whitehead was talking about that, and I want you to be assured I'm not talking about that. Sometimes I wonder if we apply loser edits to America, or more particularly, to Americans. There are a lot of folks who define themselves as patriots who spend most of their time pointing out the loser edits of other folks who are clearly American and declaring they're un-American. How does that work? How can one love one's country if you don't love the people of your country. Now look, we can all see the failings in those around us, and you're not wrong because no one is pure. 
No one gets it right all the time. And so when you want to find the failings of those around you, it's not going to take a lot of effort. It's easy to do. We have a loser edit for those, particularly those who might not be like us. But the problem with the loser edit, here's Whitehead's genius, the problem with the loser edit is at the end of the day, it's still an edit. It's not the whole story. Let me bring us back to the passage. In our text this morning, the scribes are corrupt. They take advantage of this widow who should have been the recipient of their generosity, and instead they abusively take her generosity. Shame on them for their self-centeredness. The temple should come down. That's what many modern scholars affirm, and they're not wrong. But there may be another layer here. If I understand the text, I'm not sure Jesus is brokenhearted when he looks at this woman. I think he's inspired. I wonder if he looks at her and sees something of himself in her. Here's what I mean. She looks at this temple, this institution that she loves, to which she is committed, this institution that she knows is corrupt and that its leaders have clay feet, and she still chooses to sacrifice for it. She gives all she has to this corrupt institution. Jesus points her out He doesn't want his disciples to miss this because he then goes and does the exact same thing. He gives himself for a corrupt world, not because it's perfect, but because that's what love does. Jesus knows the world is a mess. He knows the world is not worthy of his sacrifice. And with that knowledge, he still chooses to give himself for us and for all, not because we're pure, but because we're loved. Now, some might say his sacrifice was misguided and wasteful. But I think he might show us how to lean into our better angels in a messy world. I said in my e-note on Friday that this passage informs my patriotism. This is what I mean. I think, I think when we really love our country, when we really love America, we sacrifice for America. We honor soldiers who do that, but what about the rest of us? When sacrifice is an act of love, it can't be outsourced. We have to live it ourselves. I think Christian faith is a life that is lived for the common good, that we live for the good of our communities. 
So it's fine and good to wave a flag. It's fine and good to have a parade. It's fine and good to shoot off fireworks, but don't let Zach Walker teach you how to do this. But I think an informed patriotism means we sacrifice for the common good. We don't look to the nation just to benefit us, but to benefit all. All. This week, every day, we've watched rescue workers dig through rubble, trying to find life that is most likely not there. And as I watched them, I was reminded this week of seeing this before, particularly the white helmets who do this work in Syria. And in particular, I remembered, remembered a little boy that they pulled from the rubble. His name is Amran Dagnish. His home in Aleppo, Syria was bombed about five years ago, and rescue workers retrieved him from the rubble and rushed him to an ambulance. You see him here. I remember being moved by this circumstance, but there was another little boy named Alex from New York who became my teacher this week, that week. He wrote a letter to President Obama, who was president at the time, and he said this, Mr. Obama, Remember the boy who was picked up by the ambulance in Syria? Can you please go get him and bring him to my house? Park in the driveway or on the street. We'll be waiting for you guys with balloons and flags and flowers. We will give him a family, and he will be our brother. In my school, I have a friend from Syria, Omar, and I will introduce him to Omar. We can play together, we can invite him to birthday parties, and he can teach us another language. And we could teach him English too, just like my friend Aoto from Japan. Since he doesn't have any toys, my sister, my sister Catherine will share her big blue stripy white bunny, and I will share my bike, and I will teach him to ride it, and I will teach him additions and subtractions in math. That is patriotism, because patriotism is just another word for loving your neighbor. It is seeing the human in another and sacrificing for the common good, not because they are perfect, but because that's what love does. And I see it in you all the time. I see it in those of you who work in the food pantry. You do not require your clients to be pure. You just insist they should not be hungry. I see it in our social witness advocacy task force who have the courage to ask, are there ways that we can live in less racist fashion in this society? I see it in Charlotte Davidson and others who work every day to call attention to the 
rash of gun violence that is malignant in this nation and in our city. I see it in those of you who take a week of your vacation to spend it with our middle schoolers or senior highs on a mission trip. I see it in those of you who contributed extra money when we built the Manili Center so that we could build it in a more eco-friendly fashion and we could cover the roof with solar panels. Anybody who loves someone in the next generation thanks you. I could go on, but you get my point. We live in a nation like every nation that needs to be redeemed. But most nations don't know that. So it depends on people like you who understand that patriotism is just another word for loving your neighbor. It depends on people like you to sacrifice for the common good. When you love like that, I wonder if Jesus sees a bit of himself in you. I wonder, do you think sometimes he might in glory call his disciples over like he did all those years ago outside the treasury? Do you think he might call his disciples over and say, did you see that? Did you see those people at Villa's church? They look just like me. Maybe. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.